Thanks for listening to the Junior Ziggler podcast. If you are crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. All right, well, good morning. Good to be here and worship with you. And it's been a little while, actually, since I've been here. It's been kind of nice this summer. Just been bouncing around a, a little bit more out of town and uh, been able to just kind of take a break yeah, here and there, which has been uh, extra, extra nice. And, and part of that is, is it's been fun to just go visit other, other churches. I, I just, I love the church. And I love visiting other churches. And there was, <laughs> actually, there was one church that I visited a couple weeks ago. My wife and my younger two were up at camp. And so me and my oldest, we went to this this church uh, in the area. Um, it's actually, the reason we went there was my favorite Christian artist growing up, uh, he died in the 90s, but like 10 days before he died, he recorded his last album on a little boombox in this church. And so I was like, I really want to go see this church. And so I took my daughter there and uh, just great, great people. But um, mid-service, the, uh, the preacher kind of stopped and he started doing something weird. He like started prophesying over people like in the auditorium. So things got really spicy. And, and then he looked at me, he started prophesying over me. He's like, I can tell this man is going through a very hard time right now. I was like, I'm, I'm totally fine. So it got a little awkward, um, which makes it a little bit more sweeter to, to be here and to be, with, uh, to be with you. We've been in the series, though, uh, Minor Prophets, or the Minors, the, the Forgotten Prophets in, in Scripture, and, and we, continue that, uh, we continue that today. And everyone gets picked on growing up, Right? It's just kind of like part of growing up to some degree. You get picked. Now, I know some more than others, but like everyone has, has kind of been there. Like for me, the number one thing that I got picked on, for, picked on growing up for was, was my ears. Like they really stuck out. And I like to think I grew into them. If I didn't, just don't tell me. I'd rather live in ignorance. But growing up, I got called all the, all the names in the book. You know, Dumbo, Monkey Boy. Uh, I think I told you this before, but... I used to spike my hair in the front, you know, like middle school. Remember the like, ski jumps I think they were called? You like come forward and then you spike it up in the front. And then I broke my nose in soccer and I never really got it fixed. So it's, it's, it's linked to a wall really fast because my hair went up, my nose went crooked, and my ears went forward. It's like pretty dang creative. I remember girls walking behind me in the hall and they would whisper just loud enough for me to hear. And then when I would turn around and say, okay, I can hear you, they would say, of course, you can pick up anything with those big old ears. You know, it's just, it's brutal. And I can laugh about it now, but in middle school, it felt pretty low. The worst part of it though, and please don't tell this to my youngest, but I gave her my ears. And luckily she's a girl, so she can hide it, you know, with, with long hair. But when her hair is pulled back into a ponytail, it's like, daddy's ears for sure. And she's getting to the, the point where she really, she cares about it. Like last week I was dropping her off at a, at a kid's uh, ministry at a, at a different church. And it's actually the church where Nicole and I attended when we were, when we were dating. And when I was dropping Reese off, she had like a little bandana wrap in her hair. And she said, dad, could I just like tuck my ears into my bandana? I was like, oh baby, like, don't worry about it. But anyway, so for the last few months, she's been really looking forward to her gymnastic show that she had coming up. And, and so she got, you know, her leotards, like a red and black outfit. And she got her hair ribbon. And before the show, the coach had asked all the parents, she said, I want all of the participants to put their hair back. And so right before the show, she proudly got her stuff all on and she asked mama to do her hair. And, and I was the one who, who gave her a ride there. So the whole way there, she was giving me a play-by-play of everything she was gonna do and, and why she was gonna do it in the show. 
And when it came time for her act, you know, the show's going on, came time for act. I was that dad who like ran up in the front row, you know, videoing uh, that embarrassing dad. And she did great. Like in my opinion, star of the show. I, and I'm not biased at all. But you know, she did, she did fantastic. And after the show, I, I went to go pick her up backstage. And I expected to pick up this excited little girl that I d- dropped off. But when I saw her, her face was very long and her, her eyes were puffy and she just kind of looked at the ground. I said, what's up, baby? Like, that was a great show. Like, why are, you, why are you so sad? And then the tears started flowing. She said, older girls on another team backstage kept pointing at my ears and calling me a troll. I'm like, ah, my heart just like sank. It's like, ah, I know the feeling. And surprisingly, it hurt more as, as a dad than it did a, as a kid. And so I picked her up and I hugged her and as I was hugging her, because she's such a girl of justice, as I was hugging her, she whispered in my ear, what are you going to do? <laughs> now, now, it wasn't right, but in that moment, there were a lot of things that I wanted to do. I wanted her to point out the girls, you know, the team that was making fun of her, and I wanted to walk over and have a little chat and send those girls into counseling by pointing out all their little flaws. And actually, what I, what the, and I know, again, I know it's not right, but what I really, really wanted to do is I wanted to take on all of those prissy little show moms, you know, who are living vicariously through their daughters. You know, the ones, you know, raising makeup cake face daughters. I wanted to go take them on. But that wouldn't make a good headline. You know, homeless looking pastor fights a gang of dance moms. Is just, uh, maybe it would make a good headline. But just holding her, I said, I'm just going to hug my beautiful daughter and we're just going to walk out of here together. And, and that's kind of life sometimes, isn't it? Like sometimes the bully, sometimes the bullies just kind of get away with it. Only the thing is, you probably have a far, far worse story. You know, here I am talking about ears and it's like, oh, you got something far, far more serious. And I know this because I, I pray over the prayer requests. Like you were backstabbed on that business deal and you lost a lot of money and now your family is hurting. Or you were unjustly let go. Or you were falsely accused and your name is just being drugged to the mud. Or you're going through this very messy breakup, a divorce, and the divorce wasn't your fault, but somehow through the whole divorce, you lost custody of your child and it wasn't right. Or you're cheated on and your ex seems to be doing great, but here you are still hurting and struggling. You're still recovering, but they seem to be doing far better than you. Or you were abused and that memory still haunts you and your abuser never faced justice. Or there's that family, maybe even family of yours that just takes advantage of you over and over and over. And so there are those times where you kind of feel like my daughter. You just feel so low and you look at dad or you look at God and you say, what are you going to do? You see this, right? You going to fix this? Like you say you're a just God, but I don't see justice. And then it hurts even more though. You don't want to say it just being completely candid. You know, you come into church and we sing a great song. You know, you're the God of victory, but in your back of your mind, like it's really hard to sing those words because I'm losing over here. It doesn't feel like you're very victorious because I'm not getting any of that victory. I'm falling behind and I'm not feeling, I'm not feeling that victory even though you're that God of victory. Like here I am trying to do things the right way. I'm trying to honor God. I'm trying to do business the way you told me to do business. Meanwhile, the bullies, the cheaters, the, the corner cutters, the, the backstabbers, the ungodly, look at them. They're, they're winning and they're getting away with it. They're flourishing. You ever feel that? Because I do. And believe it or not, that feeling that, that I can have, it says more about me than it does about God. And I really do think that this conversation that we're about to have could drastically change your whole approach to life. 
And we need scripture to guide this conversation. So grab a Bible. We're in the book of Nahum. Nahum is page 782 in the Bibles and the chairs. Again, if you didn't bring a Bible, and a lot of people use their phones or their tablets, we also have uh, Bibles in the chairs. Again, 782 in those Bibles. We also have some notes, a little bit different today because of how Nahum is organized. The notes are just going to be a little bit different today, but we still have some notes. As I said earlier, we've been in the series Minor Prophets. There's that, like, back section of the Old Testament where all of these guys, very short little blogs, that's why they're called minors, because they wrote like little blogs uh, versus the major prophets who wrote long books. And so we're in these 12 minor prophets that many people just kind of skip over because they have weird names, you know, like Haggai, Nahum. It's like, I, I don't even know how to pronounce that, so I'm not, probably not going to read their, their blog. And so a lot of times we just kind of skip over it in scripture. But uh, this summer as a church, we're like, nah, let's just jump into these guys and, and get to know them. So Nahum is up to bat today. Now, just out of curiosity, let me ask you, what's your favorite verse in Nahum? <laughs> Probably don't have one, do you? Like, such an obscure book. Like out of all the obscure books, like this is pretty obscure. It's tucked away in the Bible, kind of forgotten about. And as we're gonna see, it's not necessarily the easiest to read. Like it's actually pretty, it's a bit difficult to like to, to preach this because it's just, it's a difficult book. And especially if you're like, you're newer to reading your Bible, you get a few verses in and you're like, I don't know what to do with this, but it is in scripture. And believe it or not, Jesus himself studied the book of Nahum. And the truth is, as we'll see, there's rich value in Nahum's words. We just have to put in a little bit more work. We have to dig a little bit more and take a few things apart to get to it. And so I hope you're up for the adventure. Let me pray. We'll just jump right into this. God, we do thank you for your word. I ask that in this very moment right now that you humble us. You break down any sort of walls, any sort of attitudes that we brought in here from this past week or maybe even this past month or year. And Father, may we realize just the, the importance of this time that we are about to hear from you. We are reading your word. And so may you humble us so that we can learn. May you humble us so that we can be reminded by your word. And may you humble us so that we can hear from you. And so Father, we thank you for this, this very precious moment. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the lens of scripture zooms into to Nahum, we find a valley of precious crops that is blazing with fire. It's a year's worth of food for the poor village that is now up in smoke that's billowing around the town's ridge. And groups of men with pointed helmets glimmering in the haze file into Israel's village to pillage and to plunder. See, the Assyrian army has a reputation for very sick cruelty. Theft and rape is only the mere beginning. Men's eyes are gouged out. The last thing they would see would be the abuse of their wife from a piggish soldier. Any man who tried to fight back would have his limbs amputated as soldiers, groups of soldiers, jeered. Victims are publicly impaled, images that children will never forget. And as the smoke begins to lighten, the Assyrian army leaves a decimated village, women and children having been terrorized and their husbands and fathers impaled at the city gates, left with very few men, no valuables and little food, this village is about to starve and die. And it's this terror that is somehow becoming normal for God's people. See, at this point in history, the Assyrian army has completely decimated northern Israel and southern Israel is close to surrender. Widows and children hunker down, periodically leaving their hideout to scavenge for food. And as families try to rebuild and replant, hoping to stay off the enemy's radar, 
copies of a little scroll begin to circulate underground to these little villages. A short little pamphlet makes its way from one widow's hands to another, one broken synagogue to another, one wounded family to another. And these words in this little scroll, they don't heal the physical wounds and they certainly don't necessarily address all of the mental trauma, but these words somehow bring a priceless hope. And these words have made it into our hands today. Verse one of Nahum chapter one, it says an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkish. Now we see Nineveh, Nineveh again. Didn't we just talk about Nineveh a couple weeks ago? We did. Uh, the classic kid story, right? With uh, Jonah. Jonah shows up in Nineveh smelling like fish guts. And so people listen to him and they turn from their wickedness and they turn toward God. It was the most radical revival ever. It was awesome. But at this point in history, a hundred years have gone by. And after a few generations, and this is a lot of times what happens just with, with people and with their generations, why I pray over my kids and my grandkids one day that they follow Jesus Christ. But what happens a lot of times with generations is they slow, you slowly lose them, especially if you, are, if you are sporadic with church, you're sporadic with your Bible reading, you're just sporadic with your spirituality, your kids are going to be far, far more sporadic, and then eventually you, you lose this. And so this is kind of what happened with Nineveh. After a few generations, people started thinking, you know what, this whole God thing is really not for us. We liked how we used to live. You know, we liked when we could sleep with who we wanted to sleep with. We liked when we could party how we wanted to party. Like those were the days. This whole following God thing really isn't for us. I guess it was for our grandparents. We're done. And so they went back, Nineveh went back to their former ways, consuming everything they could, money, women, villages. And so God calls this man named Nahum to deliver a message. Nahum from, as you can see in your Bibles, Elkish. I was talking with my buddy who's, uh, who's an archaeologist. I was texting with him last week. Uh, if you've ever been to, to Israel with the bridge, you, you've been to his house. But I was asking him where Elkish was because last time I was driving through Galilee um, with, with my wife and Hayden and my dad, we drove by this little village called Elkish. And I thought, oh, maybe that's where, where Nahum is from. It's a very tiny little town. Um, most people don't even know about that, that tiny little like settlement. Uh, but it's likely not where Nahum is, is from. Um, it could be, some people believe that, but it's likely not. Uh, some believe that Nahum lived in modern day Iraq because tradition has it that his tomb is in Iraq. And so a lot of people will make pilgrimages to go visit Nahum's tomb in Iraq. And so a lot of people will speculate, well, maybe he lived in Nineveh, like God raised him in Nineveh, even though people were all leaving God, he didn't. So God raised Nahum and he prophesied against the very town that, that he was living in. And then he was buried there. It's very possible. Uh, the other theory is, and to be candid with you, I don't care. I just find this stuff very interesting, just trying to get to know Nahum a little bit better. But the other theory is, is you ever hear of the town called Capernaum? We talk about Capernaum quite a bit. You know, it's where Jesus had his ministry, his headquarters for his ministry for three and a half years. It's a quaint little uh, fishing village on the, on the Sea of Galilee. Some people believe, get this, that Nahum lived in Capernaum. It's like, well, that's not Elkish. Why do people believe he lived in Capernaum? Well, because what the name Capernaum means. Uh, Capernaum means kafar, meaning house of Nahum. Nahum, house of Nahum, kafar Nahum, Capernaum. So when I was in Israel last year, I was staying with my friend and uh, he kept on, you know, like he'd wake up in the morning and be like, hey, are you going to go to Capernaum today? I was like, what you, I'm going to Capernaum. What are you talking You mean Capernaum? He's like, no, I think you mean Capernaum. It was house of, house of Nahum. And so some speculate that uh, Capernaum maybe used to be Elkish, but because Nahum became so famous and the city was not at all, people would be like, Elkish, read, oh, you mean the house of the home of Nahum? 
And so that's kind of where Kafar Nahum or Capernaum came from. I don't know. Lots of theories. Kind of fun to think about. I know we totally nerded out there for just a second, but it is, it is good to, to know. Here's what we do know, though. Little Snapple cap fact. The name Nahum means comfort. And so maybe Capernaum just means home of comfort, maybe. But Nahum's name means comfort. Now, I find that interesting because if you see in the next few verses, his word choice doesn't feel very soothing, does it? The Lord is avenging and wrathful. It's like, whoa, bro, mama, get your name wrong? Like, you're supposed to comfort. It's, it's kind of like, uh, you ever sleep with a sound machine? I traveled with a buddy a little while back and we had to like bunk together. And before bed, he was like, hey, Junior, you okay if I like, play my sound machine for sleep? And I was like, I, I don't care, whatever floats your boat, bro. And so we shut off the lights, you know, head hits the pillow, I'm laying there and all of a sudden I hear monkeys screeching and bushes rustling. And so I lean over my bunk and I was like, what the heck is this? He's like, it's a rainforest, man. I feel like I'm like laying in a hammock, you know, I'm just kind of enjoying the rainforest around me. It's soothing. I was like, well, I feel like I'm getting attacked by monkeys right now. Like, I feel like I'm in my hammock and a dirty monkey is sneaking up on me. Like, this is not, it's weird, right? Like, soothing is the, is the, the, the pattering of rain or maybe a little light thunder, a fan. Or, heck, I'd even take a babbling brook and have to pee three times in the middle of the night over monkeys screeching. And that's why, it's why it kind of feels like with Nahum here. It's like, you're supposed to be comfort, but these verses don't feel very soothing. Like, like, look at this, verse two. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps his wrath for his enemies. Like, whoa, that's not a verse you'd read to relax. But then again, I think these words are of comfort when you're a serious victim of horrendous justice that is still taking place. Like, we must remember all these words as these words were written, you have armies of abusers, rapists, and thieves that are peacocking all across Israel. They're dragging their stolen goods and they're bragging about their rape conquests. It's just reality. And in fact, it's so bad, but many people believe that this is one of the reasons that Jewish heritage is tracked through the mom. Because most cultures, the, the lineage is tracked from dad to son to son to son to son to son. Jewish is different. A lot of lineage is tracked from mom to daughter. And some say it's partly because of the amount of rape of Jewish women throughout history. There's just no way to tell who dad was. And so Israel had to, had to adapt. It's like, all right, the line is passed through mom again. It's the only way because we're not quite sure who the dad is because we have so many different enemies that are pillaging. I mean, that's just disgusting and, and it breaks your heart. It's sick, it's tragic. But like, this is what Israel is feeling in this moment. And so maybe verse two, it does come as comfort. Like, let's just kind of sit in this for, for just another second. Just as my daughter coming to me with tears in her eyes asking, what are you gonna do, dad? So in a way, Israel is looking at God saying, do you see this? You have to see this. Like, what are you going, you have to do something. And again, I think we know the feeling, maybe not to this level, but I think we know the feeling. It's like, God, do you see what the competition is doing? Like, they are so unfair. They are, they are so dishonest. Here I am, I'm trying to do things right. I'm struggling over here, but they're winning and I'm running out of business. You're gonna make this right? Like, God, do you see what my ex is doing? They're about to, they cheated and they're about to win custody and they're getting promoted and they're getting a nicer house and they're getting remarried. They seem happy and I'm still struggling over here. Like, are you gonna do something about this, dad? Like at this very moment, Israel is still smoldering. They're still hiding, but there's this hope. This is why these words come as hope. It's like, okay, he hasn't done anything yet, but he sees, he sees the pain and he will act. 
Now, it's at this point in this text that we should probably just stop for a second and kind of take a time out. And I should probably say this before we continue on reading more of, of Nahum. And, and this is really important. A lot of people will read this text and, and they have the right intentions, but they'll read this text and they'll, they'll ask, you know, okay, well, who does Israel symbolize here? And who does Nineveh symbolize? Because right, we're supposed to read the Bible and then we're supposed to apply this to our lives. So who does Israel symbolize? Who does Nineveh symbolize? Like maybe does Israel symbolize me? you know, because we always identify with the protagonist, right? Maybe Israel symbolizes me and Nineveh is my ex. And then we read this text foaming at the mouth, right? Like, oh, the Lord takes vengeance on my ex. It's like, oh, I love Nahum, get him. You know, I've seen people like read the Bible and do this. Like, who does Israel symbolize? Who does Nineveh symbolize? It's a great question. I'm gonna answer that. You ready? Israel and Nineveh symbolize. And you might wanna write this down because this is like so big. Israel and Nineveh symbolize. Israel and Nineveh. Not joking. That's who they symbolize, themselves. And I say this because people read the Bible wrong a lot. They superimpose their situation on the text. They say, okay, well, Israel symbolizes the church maybe. And maybe, I've seen pastors do this, maybe Nineveh symbolizes the bad political party that we don't like. And then we all get hopped up and excited about God striking down whoever's giving us a hard time. I don't want to make that mistake. This right here, what we're reading is history. Let's remember, this is history. Israel represents Israel. Nineveh represents Nineveh. And we can't read this thinking about, okay, Nineveh's my ex or Nineveh's jerk Jerry in the office and God's going to strike him down. When we read that way, we miss the point. So we can't superimpose ourselves and our enemies into this. However, what we can and should do is see the attributes of God in this text and then apply those attributes to our context today. Because as scripture says, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can learn about him yesterday to understand him better today, to see more of what he's going to do tomorrow. And so in a second, we'll see that God promises to destroy Nineveh. And we can't read that and we can't assume like, oh, God's gonna destroy the Democrats. I get, I've seen people preach this way. God's gonna destroy, lay waste to the Republicans. It's like, well, Probably not. I mean, eventually all political parties will be destroyed. Come Lord Jesus, cheers to that. But God's promise of destroying Nineveh doesn't promise us that that political party is gonna lose or our ex or that nasty coworker is gonna be struck down. That's reading wrong. Instead, we learn his attributes and there's something very valuable in that as we'll see. So I kind of went off on a little bit of like a, I don't know, like a hermeneutical tangent for a second, but it's really important to understand as we read scripture to do it correctly. Now, I love the imagery of the next verse. Nahum is such a vivid, vivid writer. Look at this, verse three. He says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. I will never look at clouds the same again. The clouds are the dust of his feet. It's easy to forget whose side we're on. It's easy to forget about the dad we have, especially when we feel like we're losing, right? Lose custody or your ex cheats and it, it, they seem to flourish or the competition cuts corners and beats you out. The office politics holds you back or that sleazy salesman gets the bonus. It's so very easy in those moments to lose sight of who our dad is. Okay, yeah, I might feel like I'm losing this battle, but I know who goes before me. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He sees what is happening. Now, it says he is slow to anger. That's an attribute. But by no means does he clear the guilty. That's good to remember. That's good to know. It's a great verse, isn't it? I love verse three. This one's pretty good though too. Verse seven, he says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Now, this is a, 
A lot of times we read past this because we don't understand the beauty of, of, of this verse. The beauty is actually in the context of this verse. And so I just want to dig a little bit in this verse uh, because it's worth it. And, and this is so fun because the context is one of the coolest stories in the Old Testament. At this point in Israel's history, Israel has had this long line of selfish, ungodly kings. And as we know, like as goes the leader, so goes the people. And so Israel has lots lost its way. It's like bad leader after bad leader after bad leader after bad leader. Their king is now eight years old. I said that right, eight years old. It'd be like my middle child running the country. I'm not gonna make any further comment on that. But eight year old king in Israel. But this eight year old king is somehow better than the many kings before. And his name is Josiah. Now, later on in his teenage years, Josiah feels drawn to God, like many of us have felt drawn to God, or maybe we're feeling drawn to God. And so Josiah decides to pursue God by cleaning out the temple. The temple at this time had been corrupted. It, it, it was abandoned. It was in shambles. And so Josiah sends out crews to go clean up the temple, restore the temple, and piece things back together. As they're cleaning out the temple, they find scripture. They're like, what's this dusty old book? And they read it, and they realize, whoa, this is like, Moses wrote this. This is like, this is the Torah. This is the Bible. And another crew is like, where'd you guys find a Bible? They're like in a pile of junk in the temple. And so they take it to King Josiah and he's like 16 at this, at this time. And they read the, the, the Bible to him. And Josiah's sitting there going, whoa, guys, we've been doing a lot of things wrong. And so he sends his men throughout the land to tear down idols and point people back to God. And so there's like this, this awakening or this revival that's taking place throughout the land. And Josiah tells the people, we're gonna do what this book says from now on. And so most people are getting on board. You know, there's always those critics who just refuse to, but like most people are getting on board and they're trying to live for God. They're trying to do things right. But as they're trying to do things right, they're getting annihilated by Nineveh. They're looking at Nineveh going, okay, they used to be about God. Uh, they left God and they're doing pretty good. They stopped caring about God and look, like they're getting ahead, they're winning, they're plundering us. They abandoned God and they're doing more than fine. And so some in Israel had to be thinking, maybe we should go back too. Maybe we should go back to doing what we were doing before. Maybe we should go back to doing our own thing. Like, might as well, right? Live like Nineveh. Because this following the Bible stuff really isn't working out, and it kind of sucks, and everyone else is getting ahead, and I'm hurting over here. And yeah, I think we've all felt that, right? Like, is this living for God thing? Is this doing what's right thing? It doesn't really work in my market. It doesn't really work in my business. Is it really worth it? See, I look at verse seven and I ask myself, do I need dad or do I need justice here? When I'm feeling behind or I feel like somebody took advantage of me or I feel like somebody's dragging my name through the mud, this is, this is the question. Do I, do I need dad here or do I need justice? I wonder how often you and I want justice more than we want God. Do we want a level playing field more than we want the one whose clouds are the dust of his feet. Like, what am I wanting here? Am I wanting justice or am I wanting more of dad? Because I think at that moment when I picked my daughter up after the show, puffy eyes, I think in that moment what she needed, she needed me. In that moment when the girls were pointing and laughing and calling her names, she needed dad. Not to come and kick butt and take names. She didn't need that, though she thought she did. She didn't need that. She needed a refuge. She needed confidence. She needed a shoulder. She needed me. She needed dad. And I know this isn't what you want to hear, but the same exact thing is true with us. When we're hurting and when we're falling behind and when it feels like 
everyone else is getting ahead. We want all the wrongs to be made right. We want all of their sin to be exposed. We want the bully to lose. Hey, we want you to level the playing field, God, and level them while you're at it. It feels so freaking good. But that's not what you need most right now. You just need more of dad. Justice will come. God does not clear the guilty as we just read. What is coming is coming. He is slow to anger, but he gets there. That's not, of our, that's not our business though. We don't hold the clock on that. What we need is dad to take refuge in. See, in chapter one, there's two commands to the people of Israel. Actually, in the whole book, all I see is really just two, two commands to the readers. The whole book is about the can of whoop that God is gonna open up on, on Nineveh, but there's two commands to his people. Verse seven, it's an indirect command. Hey, take refuge in God, run to dad, don't try to force justice on your own. Don't go to try to beat up the bullies. Run to dad. And then verse 15, he says, keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. Keep your feasts. He said, do what I told you to do. Keep following that dusty old book you found in the temple. Do what I told you to do. Run to dad and keep doing what I told you to do. In the midst of the pain, when you're losing, you keep doing what's right. You keep worshiping. You keep pursuing God. You keep living holy. You keep sacrificing. You keep doing what's right, even though it's hurting you. Why? Because there's greater reward than that than cutting corners to keep up in this life. And, and sometimes we lose sight of that. The point isn't to win in this life. The reality is, is God has called some of us, a lot of us, maybe even all of us to just look like we're gonna lose in this life because it's not about this life. It's about something far greater. We're not running that race. Can I remind you, so there's an old Olympic sport. And by old, I mean like ancient Greek Olympics. They had this craziest race and I wish they'd have it today because it'd be like my favorite Olympic sport to watch. It was a long distance run. And each runner was given a lit torch it's actually, this, this, you know, the whole like lighting of the torch at the Olympics, it actually comes from this very race. I love this race. In the original race though, they had to race with their torch lit. So, you know, run too fast or too, too windy that things are gonna go out. So you have to protect this flame also from other participants trying to put your flame out. You have to protect this flame and, and, and not let it go out. And the winner wasn't the one who crossed the finish line first. The winner was the one who crossed the finish line with their torch still lit. This is what Nahum is saying in verse 15. He's saying, okay, yeah, they're ahead and maybe they're gonna reach the finish line before you, but keep your torch lit. Yeah, I know they're further ahead. They're making more than you. They have more notches on their bedposts. They're climbing the ladder. They're winning custody. They're, they're getting more attention. Yeah, they're further ahead than you. That's obvious, but their torch isn't lit. So they get to the end and there's no reward. Keep your torch lit. Keep doing what's right. Keep worshiping, keep serving, keep blessing, keep staying pure, keep your torch lit. And as you run this race, stop comparing how far ahead others are getting because that's not the point of the race. We're not running that race. To be jealous that others are ahead says more about our wrong thinking than it does about God's fairness and justice. This isn't the race I'm running. Winning isn't the point here. Keep doing what's right even when you're losing. And when you feel like you're losing and when you feel like you're being taken advantage of and when you feel like you're falling behind in those painful and I, I know very dark, dark, dark moments, there's two questions that I think Nahum brings up in this book. Number one is if God was quick to anger, where would I be? 
Because Nahum writes, right? God is slow to anger. And so we read that, and for us, that's good, right? It's like, okay, I like that God is slow to anger with me. Like, I've benefited from that attribute of God, that God is slow to anger. But with those who hurt me, mm, I'd like him to be a little bit quicker with anger. Wouldn't we? Case in point, if you don't believe me, here. Ever see someone speed past you? Be like, they cut you off, and then you see a cop whip around and chase him, and you're like, boom! feels good, right? It's like, just so sweet. You know, he passed, like, <laughs> get him. But then when you get pulled over, it's like different thoughts. It's like, oh, please, mercy, 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 right? Yeah. I want you to be slow to anger here. In the same way, we like God's attribute of, of him being slow to anger with us because if God was quick to anger with us, we'd be in hell and we would deserve it. And so we treasure God's attribute of being slow to anger with us. That's a good reminder when we'd like for him to speed up his anger with other people. If he was quick to anger, if he was that quick to anger, where would I be? I mean, the truth is, and a lot of people don't like to talk about this today, but the truth is God does get angry. He does, it's just reality. God does punish and his punishment is chilling. In fact, it's pretty incredible what happens with the book of, of Nahum. Nahum is a prophecy, we already got into this, Nahum is a prophecy against Nineveh. And 51 years after Nahum was written, the prophecy of the destruction of Nahum actually plays out. The details of it play out. It's actually pretty amazing. If you look at verse 10 of chapter one, Nahum prophesies that Nineveh will be drunk at its destruction. Secular historian Siculus writes that on the night of the attack, the Assyrian king gave wine to the soldiers to celebrate because Nineveh is impenetrable, so drink. Uh, in chapter two, verse six, it says the river gates are opened and the, and the palace melts away. So Nahum writes that Nineveh will be flooded. History tells us that in 612, right before the attack of Nineveh, heavy rains caused the Tigris to flood, flooding the city and weakening portions of the city wall. Siculus also writes that, that uh, Nineveh had to open up its river gates to let the water out. In chapter three, verse 15, Nahum, Nahum writes that the Nineveh will be destroyed by fire. In the 1800s, when Nineveh was being unearthed by archaeologists, they had to sift through thick, thick, thick layers of ash to get to portions of the city. So not only does history back up scripture, I mean, Nahum called it 51 years before, earlier, but more than that, we see God's judgment is swift and it's sobering because we're talking about drowning, we're talking about fire, we're talking about severe judgment here. And that should cause us to think before we wish that on other people who are hurting us. Because the truth is, if it weren't for Jesus Christ, you and I, we would be objects of God's punishment too. We would be subject to God's wrath. Jesus on the cross stepped between God's wrath and us. Jesus took our beating. Like how can we be saved from wrath and then hope for that wrath to hit others? Like do we realize instead of the wrath of God, I get God. I get him, not his wrath. How unfair is that? Like we are so undeserving. And the more we understand that, the more power we find in moments where we feel like we're facing real injustice. It's like, okay, they're getting ahead. They're getting what I want. But what's their end? God is slow to anger. I have benefited greatly from that. That's something to keep in mind. Uh, question number two is, is a big question for me. The first time I heard this question, it just like, it about destroyed me. It's a hard hitting question, but it is, it is so needed. What do I want more of? Prosperity in life or proximity to God? What do I define as success here? Because they're, successful, the wicked are successful. Okay, that says more about my definition of success, prosperity in this life. 
not proximity to God. This is often the part of ourselves that we have to confront when we feel like God isn't just. Hey, they're flourishing, they're doing better than me, they're winning, and they don't care about what's right. Okay, true, but is that success to you then? Is that really how you define success as a follower of Jesus, just prosperity in life? That's success to you. Too many people who call themselves Christians are bitter because they're looking at others who are doing better and wanting what they have, failing to realize, well, their torch isn't lit. And so how sad, how miserable, how miserable, miserable, miserable of a life is it to live envying people who are on their way to hell? Are we really gonna envy those people? And then sit here and say, oh, it'd make it right if I had more prosperity? Like, would it make it more right if you had a leg up? Like you catching up to so-and-so? Is that really what you're wanting more of? Or are you happy that you get God doing what's right? I get proximity to him. I'm gonna do what's right. And I'm gonna walk with him and I'm gonna lean on him. I get proximity to God. Isn't that enough? Yeah, over here they get this and that. But do you realize you get dad? You get the God of this universe, the clouds and the dust of his feet. That's who we get. And yet we sit here and we envy those who don't get that? It says a lot about what we define success as. This is why I love Psalm 73 so much. Psalm 73 is one of the most raw chapters in all of scripture. If you've never read Psalm 73, I would encourage you to read it this week. It is like you read this chapter and you feel it. The author basically goes to God and he points at the wicked. He says, God, they're healthy, they're wealthy, they live in pleasure, they don't taste my daily difficulty. How can you let this happen, God? Like the wicked in this life, far better off than me. He writes, they don't have troubles like I do, like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everybody else. Look at the wicked people, God. They're enjoying a life of ease while their riches just sit there and multiply. Whole chapters, all of that. But then you get to the end of the, of the psalm and it'll bring tears to your eyes. It's brought tears to my eyes. The psalmist so beautifully and eloquently writes, but as for me, how good it is to just be near you. Yeah, they're, they're getting ahead, but I get God. I, I get dad. And I'm good if I just get dad. And the most beautiful words, he writes, earth has nothing I desire. Like, yeah, they get everything on this earth, but earth has nothing I desire but you. I, I want you more than I want what they have. What do you really want? What are you going after? What do you spend your days chasing? Prosperity in life or proximity to God? I'll tell you, the more that we embrace the latter, and I can tell you this from personal experience, the more we can embrace the latter, the less we're rattled when it comes down to it. I just want dad. And if dad is all I get in this life, shoot, I made out with everything. And so in this season of pain and confusion, I will remain faithfully obedient. I'm gonna keep my torch lit because when this race is over, I just wanna hear him say, well done. And in that moment, when I hear him say, well done, that moment, just that small little moment will be far better than anything this earth could have offered me. So forget who's who, forget who's got what. I get dad and that's enough. Now I'm not saying that that will eliminate pain because I know some of you are going through it. 
experiencing those dark moments where others are getting ahead and you were taken advantage of, it does not eliminate pain. But it does give you power. You do not walk through this alone. You get dad. And so just focus on proximity to him instead of the prosperity that others might seem like they have. And so we ask ourselves, so what? As we always do, come out of God's words, like, all right, so what? God speaks through Nahum. It's a tough, hard-hitting book. Where does this intersect with my life? And I think the, the question that we should ask ourselves has already been posed. What do you want more of in this life? Prosperity or proximity to God? I think we need to sit in that. In such a way where we ask ourselves, what have I been chasing? How have I been defining success? Can I legitimately say, no, I am chasing. I am on this all out pursuit to just be close with God, to walk with him, to lean into him, for him to be my confidence. Or has this been catching your eye? The prosperity of others and what you don't have. We're gonna take this time of corporate reflection as we always do. So easy to just read God's word, rush out, get on with our lifestyles. And we need this moment to just sit before God, maybe make some confessions, confess a few things, some bitterness that we've been holding on to, and then also make some commitments. Okay, how am I going to live chasing this proximity with God? How does this change me? Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.